Well, welcome to the rooftop, and you are absolutely going to love today's episode because the title for today's episode is Rooftop, Regimen, and Rock and Roll, and there's nobody better to embody that than my brother, my dear friend, my teammate, uh, John Wesley. Uh, I refer to him as Wes. I'm sure he's cool with you doing that as well. You, you'll see Wes a lot in the work that I do. He's my partner in crime and just about everything that we do together. We've been together a long time. Uh, we came together around um, things dealing with the war on terror and uh, ISIS and podcasting and just all kinds of crazy eclectic things. But we've been together a long time. How many times? How many years now? It's over six. Over six, six years half, that yeah. we've been together and, and we've been collaborators on just a range of things that we're going to talk about today. But I asked Wes to come on the podcast as my guest because when I think about the world that we live in today, when I think about the levels of what we call the churn, the distraction, the disengagement, the distrust that is out there, the leaders who are going to thrive, the leaders who are going to own the rooms through relatability to pain and relevance to goals are the ones who practice a degree of regimen that outpaces the people around them. They are going to be the people who are more disciplined, who are more granular, focused, and who are just clear on what it is that they're doing, and then they just pursue it with relentless execution. That is a pillar of rooftop leadership, but nobody really lives it better than Wes. And when you see when you see the miles that he's run in his life and what his experience has been, you'll see why. And that's really what I wanna share with you today is to really open this up. Because when we have guests on this show, the idea is that these are people who have created movements. These are people who really embody the elements of rooftop leadership, of, of that deep work of understanding human terrain, human connection and strategic impact. So um, Wes's background, I'm gonna let him actually open it up for you and, and talk to you a lot about it. But what I would characterize it as is, 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 is a guy who set his sights very early on to become a professional musician, to, to, to live that rock and roll life and to chase that dream and who did it and ran that train to the end of the line and, and then got off and got on another train and is still going. And it's that kind of discipline and regimen and rigor that I want to unpack and share with you so that you could bring it into your life and in the good work that you're doing with your movement. So, Wes, good to have you, brother. Great to be here. Great to be on this side of it. It's weird, right? <laughs> it, but it's really cool. And I was, from a different I was view. saying to you earlier, I want to do more of this because yeah. you have such an amazing point of view on so many things. You know, your, your deep work that you do mm -hmm. just listening to podcasts and long-form communication I think outpaces most people on the planet. Right. Uh, so we'll do more of this. But today is really about unpacking your life. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I think like the, the interview we did with Ben Owen a while sure. back and where we just, we just kind of started with that kid with a dream and then yeah. just go from there. So I wonder if you would mind maybe starting there and just tell us a little bit about your background, kind of where you grew up and, and, and how it started to kind of happen for you that you, this dream of, of being a rock and roller and, and how that kind of just like, take us to that point where you started to step off on it. Sure. Uh, I was born in St. Pete uh, and I was adopted very early, well, you know, four months after I was born and my parents were in Brandon and it's, it's kind of a quick, funny story, but they had been waiting for two years. They had to, back then, you had to prove that you were worthy of adoption. So my parents, my mother had had built a nursery and she built it and it sat there empty for two years. Wow. And they'd heard nothing and they'd heard nothing. 
And then on Halloween morning, uh, they got a call. They said, look, we've, we've got a male, we've got a baby. We're, you know, would you be okay if we just brought him by and you took a look at him, you know? And uh, his mom described it, you know, they're all excited. And then a yellow VW drives up to the front yard. And uh, they're like, well, we've got this one. <laughs> and mom's <laughs> like, I'll take it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I said I didn't know if I was a trick or a treat, you know, wow. after all these years later. Yeah, I was going to uh, say, that's a, that's, a, that's a Halloween special right Yeah, there. that is a Halloween special. And I was very fortunate, you know. My dad was working class. Mom stayed home. And, uh, you know, immediately they put in to adopt a, a sister, and she came along two years later. And uh, I grew up in this kind of magic little house, you know. Yeah. Just dad worked six days a week, and, and he came home at 4 o'clock every day, and we did things, and, you know, we went to church, we were a big Catholic family, and uh, it was just so solid, you know. Mm -hmm. And mom played the piano, so I was always attached to music from very a young age, and they had a, the big console stereo system, and, you know, there'd be Tom Jones, and there'd be Andy Williams was one of her big ones, you know. Yeah. And so this was the music I was hearing. Yeah. And it being Tampa, Florida in the 60s, man, AM radio was bad. You know, there yeah. was all these cool things happening with the Beatles and stuff like that. But, you know, we weren't getting any of that right. uh, really here. You know, it was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was not much. It was not the Beatles. It was not the Beatles. Right. But uh, very early on, I clicked on to music. And, I'll, and my dad would uh, work for the Catholic Church uh, doing these carnivals. And he would uh, run the ticket booth and he had this big sombrero and he would, for 20 years or more, would, would run around. I remember being a little kid chasing around the carnival and they would play the music over the loudspeakers. Uh -huh. And this song came on one day. And it was Long Cool Woman in a Black Dress by the Hollies. And this big, great sounding guitar and this vocal singing and echo, you know, with this echo I'd never heard before. And I was like, man, I want to do that. Did you feel that in your body? Absolutely. Like like a vibration almost? Yes, like chasing the speaker almost. Like wow. I, all focus was gone on anything else I was doing, and I just focused on that. Okay, and and so was, is it safe to say that that was the click? That that was definitely one of the clicks, Okay, yeah. and, a, a and, big one. That's the one I can, that and uh, the Elton John song, Benny and the Jets. Really? Yeah, that was another one that was a big, you know. Yeah, and so what, what kind of started to happen for you then? Like what, what actions did you take to... I mean, was it, was it instantaneous? Did you run out and buy a guitar? Like, how did it? Well, you know, mom and dad uh, didn't have a lot of money. Yeah. Um, we had a piano, but, you know, piano lessons weren't really on the cards, you know. So, yeah. but as I got older. Um, and how know, old were you, like, kind of at this point? At this point, I was like 10 or 11, you know, maybe mm -hmm. even nine when the whole, that whole thing happened. And um, so I wanted to to do something, you know? I didn't really know whether it was guitar or piano, and mom said, well, I'll get you piano lessons. So, at about 12, um, she got us piano lessons. And it was an old woman that just, you know, just just did not make it fun at all. Yeah. But I endured it, but I had a, a friend of mine in Boy Scouts who was taking guitar lessons, and the guy he was taking lessons from lived down the street from me. Okay. And mom and dad said, well, you know, you don't like piano. Um, Paul Freeman's right down the street. We went and bought a $30 guitar, and I started playing guitar. So I played, that, that was in April of when I was just before I turned 12, or before I turned 13. And uh, over the summer, I played, and the priest at, at church found out I was playing. I'd only been playing about four or five months. And he said, oh, well, we need someone on Friday mornings at church. 
I'm like, I can't do that. I barely know my chords. Ah, uh, you'll learn. <laughs> Literally. Thrown into it. Thrown into it. Yeah. Not knowing what I was doing. They put these songs with words and chords above them. And I and, and a good friend of mine, Bobby Encinosa, he's, he's a veterinarian in town now. He said, just, just follow me. And so I, I did. And that wasn't the, the last time that you were thrown into it. No, no, no. I, that was the... <laughs> it started if, a pattern. It started a pattern that never seemed to stop. Would you... Just, I mean, let's show the football a little yeah, bit. Like, yeah. and, and do you feel like that kind of thing of kind of being thrown into it, does, does that play a role? It does. Like in high performance and, 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 and you know, kind of playing at the highest level? It does. Absolutely. Um, if I look back at almost every gig I've ever gotten, um, right. I was thrown into it. And uh, I probably didn't want to do it almost. Like, yeah. you were, like it was scary. Scary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I was like, man, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look like an ass. And sometimes you do. Yeah. You know, that's, that just that's, happens. Uh, okay. So we're back in and we, uh, we actually moved because the, the, the smoke from the fire pit is pretty Killing brutal. Us. Um, so when did music start to take another shift for you and, mm. and it start to like become something that like, how did it, how did it evolve from there? Um, it, it's interesting. You know, um, I didn't have a lot of, I didn't play with a lot of guys. Right. So yeah. I wasn't learning some of the, some of the skill sets that I needed to know that I learned many years later, right. How to learn songs off a record that people were even learning songs off a record, you know, uh, stuff like that. And so I really, uh, stumbled into a few things. I stumbled, you know, I did a band audition, played with them one or two times. And they're like, you don't know any songs, so you can't play with us, you know? Right. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, then then I, I really lucked into a couple of guys that, that we, you know, we, we learned a couple of songs together and kept practicing and practicing. So that's where it started to really kind of like gel into, Hey, maybe I want to do this thing. It was near the end of high school. Okay. Like, you know, at the time I was wrestling, uh, you know, Brandon. Very competitively. I mean, like you guys yeah. still have a record that's unbeaten. Right? Yeah. Yeah. The longest uh, running winning streak in either collegiate or high school sports. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, they got beat once. But it's still like one loss in right. They're up. They're up around seven hundred now. But I think wow. when they got beat, it was four sixty eight. Wow. Um, so that was happening. I was playing in a band. I got out of high school, and mom and dad were like, "Well, what do you want to do?" And they're like, "I, I, I want to play in a band." <laughs> like, and what was their reaction? Well, okay, but you know, you got to get a job. So instantly, I went straight out of high school into a eight ten hour a day warehouse job, practicing in a band at night uh, with Mark. With Mark Prater. Yeah, Mark Prater. Uh, Mark is one of our uh, one of our mm -hmm. teammates at Rooftop. He's involved in the play. You guys have literally known each other since, and played together since high school. He's a yep, drummer since high school. He's a fantastic drummer. Yeah. And uh, so, and he got a job there when he got out of high school too. And so, eventually, I started going to college. You know, and, and um, my guitar teacher at the time said I can get you a scholarship at the college. And so that really helped because mom and dad didn't have any money, you yeah. know. So I, I went to went to a community college on a scholarship, and I graduated from there, and we hit the road. And how was your guitar skill by the time you graduated community college? Adequate. Adequate. Just adequate. By yeah. by John Wesley standards. By my by standards. By, yeah. by normal human standards. How yeah. Was it? Seriously, it was um, because I made a lot of gains later on. Okay. You know, as All right. by getting out there and playing five and six nights a week for six years solid, four sets a night. And this is what happened after you left college. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we had a dream. We had written a bunch of songs. We probably had an album or two's worth of material. We'd done some demos. We had a manager that was trying to get us a record deal. 
and we couldn't play live that much because there wasn't really uh, places around here to do your own thing. What year was this, Wes? Just this, to give us some context. This would have been 82. 82. Yeah. An interesting time. An interesting time. And then between 82 and 84, we just really started prepping, uh, you know, a set to get signed. We had this really unique sound. Well, and how would you describe the uh, sound, like genre-wise? Yeah, it was kind of progressive rock and new wave combined. Okay. Because you know, new wave was really hitting hard. The cars were hitting. Um, uh, again, here in Florida, we hadn't really seen a lot of the punk thing. Yeah. Um, we'd seen a lot of the country rock thing and ACDC and Kiss and stuff a lot like of the that. Hair bands and the, the hair bands were just, just starting. starting. Yep. And so, you know, we hadn't really developed into that, but we had a really good looking lead singer that could do the hair band thing. So next thing you know, we, we all jumped on that, but our sound was completely different. So we, you'd come and see us and it looked like a hair band, but we would sound kind of like a cross between Genesis and the cars. It was and, very and kind strange. of a rush. And rush. Oh, well, well, yeah. I mean, that's the big one there. Yeah. That was driving almost everything I did as a guitar player at that point. And why is that? I just clicked it with that sound, that band, that guitarist, and those lyrics, you know, the, the yeah. lyrics of the drummer. And Mark, as a matter of fact, my audition song for that band was a Rush song. It was Xanadu. Okay. So, um, wow. Very long, complex tune. And it was like, that's what's the first thing we learned together. So is your, so you, you strike out on the road. Yep. You're playing these gigs. Talk, Five, talk about a that a little bit, a day in the life kind of thing. Where are you playing? What's... Um, what's that life like, you know, yeah. cut, cutting out a living in yeah. the early 80s as a rock and roller? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, so at this point, I'm probably 22, 23. Got out of college, uh, go on the road. And the road was we had a crappy van that I <laughs> got to have a crappy van. got to have a crappy van. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> it's so good, too, because it had this big forest scene painted on the side. Like oh, the my side. God. You know, we had a van when I, my, oh. my, and it was, I swear to God, my family's van. <laughs> it was one of those customized, it had carpet on the mm -hmm. ceiling. And on the back, it, so it, had, it, it had like the desert landscape on the side. Yep. And on the back of the like wheel cover, it said the man van. The man van. Yeah, oh, my God. my God. Anyway, I, I digress. That is, that's better than this. But we did have the death chair, which was good. You know, the yeah. death chair was spectacular. I'll explain that in a second. So my uncle had built this thing out on the inside and it was painted on the outside. And on the side of the mountain painting, there was this little cabin with smoke had come out of it. And of course, that became our Mad Trapper's cabin. All right. You know? So he became a, a fixture in our traveling. <laughs> and it was just a big bed in the back and a kitchen you couldn't use. And there was no uh, captain's chair in between the two main chairs. So we took a, a chair from a nightclub, one of those ones you have at a table, and we just stuck it there. Oh, that's safe. The death chair. More Holy than cow. one person kissed the dashboard in the death chair. And we would call it. So, so who, who gets to sit in the death well, chair? Well, you'd does fight it? for it. I mean, because there's the driver. Who gets to do it or who has to do who it? Who gets to do it? See, it that's the crazy. difference between doing 20-something and, yes. you know, and, where we are now. And something. <laughs> <laughs> who we get fought, to sit in the death you chair. You fought for the death chair. Because oh. there was the driver. There was shotgun. <laughs> death chair, death chair. Really? Wow. Yeah. But, of course, you didn't do that. Never, because I was probably at one time I was the only guy with a driver's license, so <laughs> I was I was driver man. Uh, all right, uh, so 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 talk to me about like what's the scene look like? What are you? Where are you playing? What's that like? It, it's like nothing you could imagine these days. So there was a circuit in every major town of of big rock clubs. You know, okay. the DJ thing hadn't really happened. There was there was top forty, but then there was rock. Yeah. And, you know, you could put a thousand people, 1500 people into a rock club on a Friday night. 
And so these bands would come in and they'd buy this big production and lights or rent it. And you'd have a crew and you'd, you'd dress up and you'd get out there. You'd do four 45-minute sets a night or three one hours or five forties, which is a lot of material. It's a lot, a man. long night, you know? Yeah. And we started doing that every single week. And, you know, by the time you paid your crew and your expenses, we were living off of $10 a day each for the first three, four years we did wow. this. I mean, that's not an exaggeration, three or four years, but you learn to adapt. You had girlfriends that helped you, you know, crash your parents' house. You didn't have to pay rent because you were living in hotel rooms. At any point along that way, I mean, that's a long time, man. Three <laughs> yeah. or four years at $10 a day. Yeah. Now you're partying. Yeah. Well, now that's interesting. Okay. Because <clears throat> we would not party as much as one would think. Okay. I believe uh, that with you, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, uh, the, the drug scene was happening. We were playing the Miami scene, the, the, yeah. the Key West scene, Fort Lauderdale, all that. But we were only making $10 a day. <laughs> so no one right. could buy anything. Crack wasn't invented yet. It was, crack hadn't, hadn't been invented. Uh, and, you know, we were so focused on the mission on the, yeah. that drug... Now, we had some crew guys roll in and out sure. that, that had that thing, but no one in the band really ever got Didn't. caught that, up in that, it. And that's pretty rare, man. It is. Now Particularly we, at that time of the year, of the, yeah. of the, of the uh, era, and then you were in the Miami scene. Yeah. Now, oh, talk man. about the Miami scene in the early 80s. What's that like? Well, Scarface, the movie either uh, hadn't come out yet and actually came out while we were doing all this, I think. And so we were discovering that scene, that thing, because we had come from Tampa and started ending up down there. And, and, and truthfully, I hadn't really had any experience with that level yeah. of, of, yeah. of drug, uh, drug commerce. And Miami was built on it back then. So, right. you know, and the, you'd have all these players come in and you're like, gosh, man, that guy's kind of dumb, but man, he's got a lot of girls and a ton of money. Right. <laughs> How's he doing that? And you go, hey, he's a drug dealer. And, oh, oh. Because you just haven't been around it. I haven't been around it. Right. You know? yeah. and, uh, and, and really none of us really dabbled in it that much. And, yeah. um, but, it, but that became our clientele because... Hey, uh, we were playing a place called the Button South a lot. And the Button South had a 6 a.m. liquor license. It was on the border of Fort Lauderdale and Miami. And so the clubs in Miami, and, and this is when topless clubs were bigger than they are now, or topless full nude down there. And they would shut at 2.30. And then they would sh uh, everyone would converge on the Button South, and you'd have music until 5 in the morning. And you're playing there? Yeah, on a weeknight. And, 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 and did you ever get, like, did these guys, like these heavies, did they ever step in and say, you're going to play longer? Or oh, like absolutely. Yeah, that's a good story. We played this one place in uh, Miami called Metro 107. Little tiny place, had a little champagne room. And, you know, you'd play till four and you're tired yeah, at that man. point. You know, you started at 10 or 11. Yeah, man. And um, so about 3.45, you'd go into the last song, you'd see the, the, the GM, the little 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 young lady would, would walk up with a silver tray and a bottle of Perrier Jouet and a stack of, of hundreds. <laughs> and Mr. Unnamed Colombian requests another set. And just the fear in her, you know, was like, and you, and you knew it was you're like. doing that set. That you're doing that set. And, and, and everybody knew it. And everyone knew it. And on the wow. flip side of that, you know, it wasn't like we were all dividing up the hundreds. We had to fix the truck. So it was like, everyone was like, new truck engine. Right. Yeah. For <laughs> we're going to pay. Yeah. For the band. We're going to, we're going to pay the hotel bill. That pay we the Mad Trapper. Up. Yeah. Pay the Mad Trapper. 
Exactly. Hell yeah. <laughs> and this, but we, you never thought about replacing the death chair in all of this with the oh, money no. you got. No, that, <laughs> and we never even thought about bolting it down. Even after we, we had a that radio DJ and uh, oh my god, Key West, I love it, that wanted to ride with us uh, to to a club uh -huh. after we got off, and she sat in the death chair and she didn't get the memo, you know, that when you stop, and she nailed the. <laughs> <laughs> the, Did you ever have any moments in Miami that were like pretty hairy? Like yeah. It, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> God. Well, you know, every now and again, you'd, you'd talk to someone and, man, I was a Catholic kid that came up through high school and focused on rest. I didn't get it. You yeah. Know? I didn't understand it. You meet someone really nice. Hey, man, you know, when you get off at five in the morning, hey, we're going to have a little get together at my house. Come on back, you know? Yeah. And so you ride over there and, and you're there and there's all these kind of strange people around and then a card pull up in the driveway and it'd be, I'll never forget this it was an old woman and, and some guy and he walks out there and talks to him for a while and something goes back and forth. And I'm like, it's 6.30 in the morning. They can't be buying drugs. Right. They must, why would they be here at 6.30 in the morning? Well, of course, that's what they were doing, you know? And so... I, I learned pretty early on who to, yeah. to so I was pretty fortunate. And what that. was your vision at that point, Wes? So like you're playing this, you know, which is a pretty, it's a pretty dynamic scene. Mm -hmm. I mean, so you're yeah. in the mix. Mm -hmm. um, what is, what is kind of your, how does the dream metabolizing at this point? Like, do you have a pretty clear picture of very what clear. you want to do? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Always very focused. Mm -hmm. We were writing songs and, you know, I think they were unique songs, but they weren't songs that were going to be on the radio at the time. But, you know, when you're young, hey, man, you know, and then when you got, you know, you got management telling you, hey, we're going to get you that deal. And, and you know, record company guys uh, loved showcases in Lauderdale and Miami because what were they all into? Right. <laughs> and so either either golf or cocaine, it was one of the two, you know. Right. And, and so, sure, showcase for Auto Drive and uh Key West, hell yeah. And what was the name this. of your band at that time? It was a band called Auto, Auto Drive. Drive, that's yeah. right. Okay. And um, so there were bands all around us that were getting signed. And back then, if you got signed, like your life changed. It's not like it is now. Now, if you get signed, you've got to build a thing. And, yeah. you know, you got to get your social media up and the budgets are real small. Back then, you got signed. You got a publishing deal big enough that the main writers could buy a house and a car and their life was changed forever. You know, yeah. I know many guys that got big record deals at that time period that they never, you know, record might not have even come out that they were set up for life just off the publishing advance and the, and the, and the record advance. So what was that like? Like guys around you were getting signed. Like, mm -hmm. is that, is that start, that's really driving you oh, towards yeah. that goal, right? Because you knew, because, you know, you'd be playing multi-bill shows with them and you're like, well, we're better than that, you know? Right. Of course, it's the running guitar player joke. You know, how many guitar players it take to change a light bulb? Like one and 99 to stand back and say, I could have done it better. Right. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we were that band, you know, we could have done that better. Right. And so, well, they got signed and, and our manager got that band signed. So we're going to get signed, you know, and, and so that you, you, you hang on to it and chase it. It's almost it like a, it. a drug in itself, mm -hmm. isn't oh, it? Oh, it was. Yeah. Oh, that, it, it was motivating. And so what did your regimen look like? You're, you're knocking off at four Holy crap, like when do you sleep? When do you practice? Yeah. You, you know, <laughs> you, you get off at four, um, you're wound up, you try and drink, 
you know, to, 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 so you could get to sleep and then you're hungry. So you'll find a Denny's or back then it was a Wags or anything with your $10 with your $10 or whatever girl that you could meet that would help you out, you know, and, uh, and you know, back then you could get the sunny something, something breakfast for a buck 60. So you'd do it, you know? And, uh, so you try and do that. Sometimes you just, you wouldn't eat and you'd go back to the hotel room and, and eat your can of soup or your ramen, whatever you had, you know, your bologna. And um, then you'd sleep till probably noon, you know, because yeah. to get six hours sleep, you're going to bed at six. You gotta you have it. it. Gotta have it. Yeah. And then you get up, you deal with some business, you practice in your hotel room a little bit because you're living. We'd only afford two hotel rooms. We had eight guys and you'd share a bed, you know, Wow. Uh, two beds. And, you know, I shared a bed with, you know, probably Mark for <laughs> six years. <laughs> you know? I mean, he's attractive and everything, but, you know. <laughs> That's uh, awesome, man. And, and then um, was there ever a point in that that you just looked around and you're like, man, I can't, I can't nope. do this? Or did you ever question what you I were I never doing? questioned what we were doing. Um, and then, you know, and, and I'd even at that point gotten married, had a, had a baby, got divorced, um, was, you know, trying to figure all that out. And, you know, uh, the last couple of years I was on the road you know, I was having to pay child support. So, you know, by that time we'd got our pay up to, up to 150 to $180 a week, you know, which was kind of big for us back then. Right. And, uh, you know, so I was supporting my daughter going back to see her. My weekends were usually, uh, either Sundays and Mondays or Mondays and Tuesdays. So I'd go back to see her. So let's talk about that for a second. So this is, you know, I I feel like there are major inflection points in your life. Mm -hmm. So you're, 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 you're running this rock and roll lifestyle mm-hmm. and you're really tracking mm-hmm. pretty darn well and you know doing the work staying away for the most part from the things that could be distractions for you yeah um and and keeping your eye on the prize you get married and 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 this little one comes along yep and 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 then divorced yeah um there there has to be at some point in your journey there a decision point yeah talk about that well, the thing, like, the band was good. We were writing good songs, so I had an unwavering faith in our success. I knew it was mm-hmm. coming because I had seen it. We had grown through the club scene to where we were one of the top touring club bands. We were making decent money now. You know, everyone's making almost a couple hundred bucks a week. And, and so, and, and everyone's still... And, telling you, yeah, you're going to do this. You're going to get this. You're going to get this. And, and, you know, there are record company guys going, oh, three more songs, man. Just, I just need to hear the hit, you know? And so there's always that, that, that thing, that, that carrot being dangled. And, you know, the divorce thing, it was horrible and it was nasty. And, and, uh, you know, there was some mental illness involved. And so there was that element that I hadn't figured out yet. Yep. And that yet there's this little girl, right? Right. And, um, so we had a shared custody and Jamie, uh, went with her mother and so, you know, now I had a harder focus. I worked us even harder. The last two years that we were on the road, this without exaggeration, we played 50 weeks a year. We always took Christmas week off unless, unless we got forced into it. And there would, you know, somewhere along the way, we would lose a week. So, you know, average of 52 weeks that's a year. That's insane, man. Yeah, it was. Yeah, but that's the way we lived. How like, many days a week out of that? Uh, anywhere from four to seven there were, there were some gigs that were seven-day-a-week gigs, and you'd get them for three weeks in a row. So right. you could do a 21-day stretch. But your full-time endeavor is rock and roll. Like you're not doing anything but Nothing that. You're but. full-in committed. Mm-hmm. 
there was nothing else in life. Right. Um, and there became taking care of her. So, so how does that start to unfold for you? Like, how do you start to deal with that? <sighs> well, you know, my parents, the way they raised me, they were always focused on us kids. Yeah. And there wasn't anything they wouldn't sacrifice or give for us kids. And um, so that became my focus, which drove me to write more. It drove me to book better, you know, switch agents. If the management wasn't working, it was gone. You know, it just became this, the drive got more intense and we got really good. And then we put out an independent record and people liked it, you know, and, um, six to eight months after we put out this record, you know, the singer, he got an offer to do something else and split to LA and that was it. And it was like, Whoa, wait a minute. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's, it's over. And everyone's like, well, yeah, we'll just, uh, wait for Jimmy to come back and, uh, you know, we'll, uh, we'll, uh, we'll write songs and, uh, we'll get a record deal somehow. And so literally my living, my only way to make a living just ended one day without any warning. Really? Without any warning. It was about, a, uh, we had to give about a month's notice. Wow, that's not much though, man. No. And then we had one more gig. At uh, what point in your life, like what year is this now? This is 1990 to 91. Okay, and you're how old? Ish. Oh, 28, 29. Wow, okay. Yeah. So, I mean, most 28 and 29 year olds at that point, they're, they're on. They're established, they're doing established, their thing. And, yeah. and, and, and you've got a little girl to take mm -hmm. care of. Yep. Right. Yep. So? So... I had a girlfriend at the time and uh, I was kind of crashing with her. And I realized that two weeks from this one day, I was going to be out of a, out of a, out of a job, not I had no way to make money. And, uh, I had the only education I had was a music education. So I literally took the acoustic guitar that I was using in uh, the show and I sat down and I thought, well, I'm going to do what those guys in Key West do. And I went out and uh, to the dollar cassette store and bought a bunch of dollar cassettes of all these classic tunes. And within two weeks, and I wasn't the singer in the band. I was right. just a guitar player, not a great singer. I had not developed at all as a singer, as a vocalist. Um, and so within a two week period, I'd learned 30 songs, made a book, lyrics, chords, just like that old church book, exactly like it, except for the songs were different obviously. And then, uh, I, I went around knocking on pub doors. I got a $50 gig at an Irish pub and they said, well, yeah, you're all right. You know, 50 bucks. I said, can I get 75? And like, yeah. I said, I got a kid, man. 75, you know, what was so, that like at that point in your life? Was that, what did that feel like being where like you'd lost, like everything that you had kind of that train you were on yeah. it ended and now you're, you're at this point where you've got to make a major pivot. You're knocking on doors. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a rough spot to be, man. What did that, what did that feel like it, 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 when you look back on that now? It was like the end of the world, really. I mean, you're like, there's no hope, you know, there's nothing going on. Um, but this is all I know how to do. And then there was that drive for her. It was like, but you have to do something because if you don't make your child support payments, her mother isn't going to have enough to take care of her. And if she doesn't have enough to take care of her, she's going to suffer and it's going to create animosity between her and I. Right. And that's going to be bad for her. So yeah. I am going to not give up guitar playing, but I'm going to do something different and I'm going to make this work. I just think there's really something in that. You know, I just think there's really something, you know, not just for you in that, but for, for me and anybody watching this is just that like, 
you know, that moment that, that you know, I think Pressfield calls it the all is lost yeah. moment, you yeah. know, in writing. And I do believe that we we hit those moments, you know, at different times in our life. And it sounds to me like that's kind of what oh, that yeah. moment was. But it's oftentimes in that moment, you know, is, is when we become the most clear. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it sounds to me like you were really clear. And there is one particular extreme moment of clarity. My parents had, had, had suggested maybe I should go back to USF and finish up a BA. Because I had an AA in music. And they're like, you go yeah. back and get a business BA. And I was standing in line to pay for my classes. Wow. I had already been through orientation. I had picked the classes. I had enrolled. I was in the bursar line, three people in front of me. And it was going through my mind, what do I want, what do I want my life to be like? What do I want my life to be like? What do I want my life to be like? And, and, and at that moment, I realized who I was, wasn't the person standing in line to get that business degree. Oh, so and I walked out of that line and went home and told my parents. And what did that feel like, walk, that walk out of the line? Did you feel liberated? Liberated, you, yeah. Isn't that Scared crazy? shitless. Yeah, but free. But free. Isn't that yeah. nuts? Yeah, and I had like two gigs that week. Yeah, I was like, okay, that yeah. means $150. I, I, felt a, I felt a similar thing when I, I got out of the Army, retired, went into contracting for a couple of years, as mm-hmm. you know, and, and, and you know, because that's what you do when you get out of special sure. operations. You go Good become contract. a contractor. Mm-hmm. And it's nothing against that. We're only got a lot of buddies who do it. But, mm-hmm. you know, it just, it just wasn't for me. And yeah. I could feel it, but yet I didn't, I was terrified to walk away from it. But when I finally did and I... I decided to become a public speaker. Right. And I told my wife that, kind of like you going to tell your yeah. mom and dad that. I remember kind of that walk into the kitchen to tell Monty that. And um, but I had never felt more free. Yeah. When I'd made that decision. Didn't know where I was going. Didn't know how I was gonna get a gig. Right. Um, again, I was an adequate player, but there was a thousand cats in LA that could play me under the table and were much, much better with Aquanet than I was. So what'd you do? Like what happened? You told your mom and dad. Then, yeah. like what was the move? That, so that was when you started knocking on doors. And yeah, I was knocking on doors heavier, uh-huh. getting more gigs, and I just started getting gigs, and I got solo? better solo, okay. just by myself. Um, the band was still trying to write songs. Uh, Jimmy had come back from LA. That they were waiting on somebody to come back. Yeah, or something to. Yeah. In a way. In a way. Yep. Yeah. And, you know, he had come back from, from L.A. And so we tried it again. Yeah. It didn't work out, you know. But, but Mark and I kind of hung together. And then <laughs> to make money, I remember one of the things we did, we had, we had invested in this big PA system yeah. and this lighting system. And uh, a girl that I was dating at the time, her brother-in-law started the Suncoast Calendar Men. And uh, the Suncoast Calendar Men um, eventually <laughs> spawned the guy that uh, – that did uh, Magic, Magic Mike. Mike. <laughs> so in a way, you're like the godfather of Magic Mike. I'm the god, yeah, godfather of Magic Mike. <laughs> well, it's interesting because we were the ones that brought in the Hollywood style production. They were doing it at this club named Stingers and there was no real light. They just had a couple colored lights on them. Yeah. And I went and saw it one night with John. I said, hey man, you know what? You give me 150 bucks. I'm going to bring a fog machine, <laughs> truss, lighting, two follow spots, operators. Just give me 150 bucks and I'm going to make your show. You really are the godfather of Magic Mind. <laughs> like Channing Tatum ought to be like calling you up, thanking you. We did it. But you did it as an offshoot of, yes. of the art that you were into yes. as a way to stay in the game. I had to stay in the game. I had to stay in the game. I had to make a living. Yeah. I had to pay. Yeah. I had to support my daughter. And I couldn't lose her because if you stop supporting, I knew my ex-wife would take her away from me. Right. I couldn't, couldn't do that. How old was she at this point, Wes, when Magic Mike showed up? 
Magic Mike showed up to you, she would have been about three. Okay. And we did that for almost two years. Right on. Um, and we do it on a Wednesday night. And then they had, yeah. we had set up another show down south and they had another operator down south. So I was making enough money between that. I, I, I had to pay for the light show, you know, a little bit. I made a little bit. Mark made a little bit. Uh, Dave, our buddy, uh, the bass player, he made a little bit. So for all of us, it became this income stream. Yeah. And it was a scream. You know, we did, we did that every Wednesday for almost two years. But it's so entrepreneurial. Yeah. You know, that's what I love about it. It's yeah. so entrepreneurial. And I think, you know, this is one of the things that the reasons that we do these interviews and the reasons that we have this podcast is that in, in times of churn, when mm -hmm. things are challenging, they're falling apart, like whether it's COVID or a recession, there's always a move you can make, mm -hmm. right? There's always a move. There's always a pivot yeah. if you're open to it. And it's not apparent. No. I never thought I would be, I was just going to see my girlfriend's brother-in-law and his male dance review. And as I'm sitting there watching this, I'm like, I got to do something on that light show. I think I just figured it out. And it led open, to them being. Because you were open to it. Because I was open to it. Yeah. yeah. And, they, yeah. and it led to them being usually successful. Yeah. I love it, man. You That's know? just the coolest thing. So, so from there, um, how did you re-enter the game, so to speak? Like what, what, because you did go next level. I did. And it's an interesting, it, it's another one of those, are you ready? Are you going to do this? Moments. Okay. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I did it anyway. So I had a good friend of ours who had been our sound man. His name's Andy Meyer. And Andy today uh, is, 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 is the sound man for uh, Justin Timberlake. Okay. Um, and he's worked with everyone in between. I'm talking okay. everyone in between. He's run the miles. He's run the miles. And at that point, he, he was working with a band called the Smithereens and their management company. Smithereens went on a break. Andy needed money. He crash landed in Tampa like the rest of us. A band from England called him and said, hey, <clears throat> uh, we just lost our guitar tech and our drum tech. And um, we need someone for a North American tour next week. And Andy called me and said, hey, man, uh, you want to be a guitar tech? And I'm like, oh, I've never guitar tech before. Because come on, you had guitar techs for the last 10 years of your life. You trained them. Just fake it. You can do it. It's 600 bucks a week. I was like, whoa, I am in. I don't care what it takes. Yeah. I'm doing that. And he said, okay, it's this British progressive <laughs> rock band named Marillion. And I'm like, yeah, I saw them. I've seen the videos on MTV. Yeah, okay, cool. And uh, <laughs> so we got into this 24-foot truck and drove to New York. Was that you up. and Mark? Did, was no, Mark, it was okay. me and Andy. Okay, got yeah, it. Yeah, because Andy was a sound man. Okay, got but it. He's like, oh, that was half the joke. Well, I've never drum teched. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, oh, we're going to be good, you know? <laughs> Wait till they get, <laughs> Wait till they get us. us. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> we drove up to Quebec from Tampa. Nice. Picked up their gear at, the, at JFK in a big 24-foot box truck. We get there. I'd never seen snow before, and Quebec in February. You saw snow in Miami. I did. I, my See goodness. I, I like the connection. The I like ladies. how you did that. Yeah, the ladies' welcome. humor there. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I'd never been a guitar tech, so we roll into rehearsal with these guys, and they were very sweet and nice and very English. And uh, and uh, I fell. I was carrying one of the guys' amps, and I fell like right <laughs> on stage, just dropped. <laughs> and I was so thankful it still worked because I thought that's it going home going home because back then if you did something wrong man th there was you were yeah. there was somebody waiting in line there was somebody waiting in line yeah it was just plane ticket home thank yeah. you very much you know yeah and so I get the idea that that 
they kind of knew I was new, but they didn't say anything because I tuned his guitars and they were in tune and his stuff worked. Okay, that's good enough. And so we got along, you know, we really hit it off. And so that night they're like, well, let's go to a club. I'm like, let's go to a club, you know? So we went to this rock club and there's this Canadian rock band playing and the drinks are flowing because they've just met these new American friends and we're meeting with them. And I, I bump into the guitar player and I say, hey man, you know, I play guitar too. And they, oh, you want to jam with us? And I'm like, this French guy, you know? I was like, yeah, let's jam, you know? So he calls me up and I go up and playing some Led Zeppelin rock and roll, you know? And the guys in the, in the band are going, um, doesn't he work for us? Tap on the shoulder. Yeah. Tap on the shoulder. And they're like, well, he plays. <laughs> That's so great. He's not just a tech. The He's not plays. just a tech. Mm-hmm. So we hit it off again and we told stories and, and, you know, I had a career, I was doing demos, I was sending out my solo work to record companies and we got in the back lounge of the bus and I played a song for him, a song called 13 Days. It's a gut-wrenching song. I can hardly listen to it anymore. But at that moment, it it moved a couple of the guys in the band, including the sound man and the keyboard player, Mark Kelly, and the bass player, Pete. And and they were like, geez, that's pretty good. I was like, okay. And so two shows later, we had had three support bands that were too much trouble. And the sound man was like, you know what? I'm done with them. When we get to Syracuse, Andy says, you can do a gig. And I said, yeah, I, I do solo acoustic. He goes, can you do 30 minutes? And, and, and I said, yeah, I, I can do 30 minutes. And his name was Privet, Chris Hedge. And his name was Privet, Privet Hedge, like a private hedge. And uh, he said, look, mate, I'll pay you $100 for 30 minutes. You can borrow Pete's acoustic guitar. And I was like, $100? Hell yes. And uh, <laughs> so Mark Kelly walks out on stage and he says, I'm going to, Introduced to you the opening act, and he's a friend of mine. And if you boo, I'm going to come out there, and I'm going to blank all your girlfriends. <laughs> and that was my intro. So not only did you hatch Magic Mike, but you also hatched a Star is Born. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that the way it went down? Oh, my God. Isn't that God. the way oh, that movie went yeah, down? That's, I think that's the way it went down. Oh, yeah. my God. They're stealing everything from you. And. I opened up almost every show on the rest of that from tour. From that point on. From that point on. Wow. And I saw so guitar tech. I was making money doing that. And then the next thing I know, I got a call. Let's go to South America. Hey, let's go to South America. And then let's finish up in the States. And I did over 450 shows with those guys. Wow. As recently as 2016. And, and talk about some of the platforms and venues where you were performing. Oh, my God. You know, it would go from a small club with 500 seats in it. I did this one European tour. The Bra- they had an album called Brave in 94. And it was three months solid in Europe. And uh, we played the Ahoy in Rotterdam. It was like 13,000 people. Wow. You know, keeping 13,000 Dutchmen and their wives interested in acoustic guitar for 30 minutes was a, was a chore. <laughs> and it happened. And they loved it. And I sold a lot of records, you know. That yeah. was the other thing the guys did. They, Mark came over and helped me produce a, an album. And so yeah. my first album went out on their... They, it was the first time they'd ever done anything like it. They released the album on their own label and we sold 3,500 copies on this, uh, wow. on this tour. Wow. So, yeah. Um, so at this point, does it feel like it's starting to, like things are starting to line up and get what yes. you actually wanted out of this journey? Absolutely. Yeah. I, it was an interesting guy. I finished that tour and I'd been gone for three months and I got off the plane <clears throat> and back then you could walk, if you were uh, waiting for someone, you could walk up to the, to the door of the, the ramp and I come off the ramp and there's my mother and there's my ex-wife 
and there's my daughter. And my ex-wife is looking very impatient. And my mom's got this look of fear in her eyes. And, uh, and you've got to understand, I've been on the road for three months, man. I'm worn out. I've only come home with a couple grand in my pocket. I, got, I have no place to live except my parents' house. I have a crappy van. I got nothing. And she says to me, yeah, um, I'm moving over to another county. Uh, you're going to take her for the summer um, and then bring her back. And, uh, oh, by the way, she's failed kindergarten. And off she went. And I'm standing there holding this little girl's hand. I don't know what to do. Failed kindergarten. What does that mean? So the next day, I, you know, I, I, I got up, drove over to the school on the other side of the county. And I said, how does she fail kindergarten? And they went, well, they looked at her, looked at her record. said, you know, 36 absences and 24 tardies. Okay, mom's wow. been going through some things. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm like, what can I do? And they're like, get her here every morning at 7 a.m. And we're talking, this is in Lutz. I live in Brandon. So we're, this is a 45 minutes to an hour, an hour drive, drive. Yeah. to get her there for seven in the morning. And I just did it. Yeah. And of course it wasn't, she didn't fail because of intellect. She's brilliant. She's brilliant. Yeah. And, uh, and then near the end of that, my buddy, Mark, again, had an extra room closer he gave me that room, and so we lived in his room um, and finished it out. And at the end of the summer, uh, her mother was, was really struggling, um, and so I made the decision to keep her. I enrolled her in elementary school near where I lived and moved in with my sister and just said, uh, I'm going to keep paying you child support, uh, and I'll put her in school here, and you come get her on the weekends. And then she never went back. Two years later, I was able to get a lawyer to just. So you raised her? Yeah. So this gets to the point where, like, um, I really want to dig in because, yeah, you know, now now it's really coming down to, like, you know, there's there's the dream. Yep. But then there's also your local reality mm-hmm. of now you're the single parent yep. of a little girl. Uh, you've now got sole custody yep. or you're moving in that direction. So yep. what's going through your mind at this point? How do I sell records? How do I write the song? Okay. How do I get there? That's so the writing is now starting to come to the forefront? Is that- it, it had been at the forefront, but it was even more so now because I was on my own. You yeah. know, that's that's kind of how I'd gotten that, that break with Marillion. I'd written yeah. my first solo record. They helped me produce it and put it out there. And there were people interested in it. You know, there were, it was getting play in some places across Europe. I'd done a small European tour on my own. You know, things have, things have been happening. What are the negative things running through your mind at this point as you're thinking about that? Like, what's the, what, 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 are, the, what are the scenarios you're playing out in your mind that could go wrong? Uh, I couldn't fail. I mean, right. you know, there's no way I can. It's just the, the songs are good. The songs are good. I've worked on them. I can't not get a record deal. So you're not allowing no. any of the, the head chatter or the resistance to come in no, and, the, the, and manifest? Not in that arena. Where things got tough was I can't pay the rent. You know, how do I pay the rent? And so I became, you know, five and six nights a week. I dropped Jamie off with my parents and, and, and do gigs. So, right. And that went on for years, years. And I was really lucky because the Marillion guys would call just out of the blue. Hey, hey, mate, we're going to do six, six weeks in, in Europe. You want, you, want, you want tech and support? I was like, yeah, let's do it. And I'd yeah. go over there and I'd make a bunch of money and that would help me get through the next bit. And. And uh, just chasing it, you know, all the way up until, and 
I had small record deals during this period, you know. Yeah. And then um, I, I met uh, an artist named Fish, who was the original singer for that band. And the, and the Marillion guys, again, stepped to the forefront and recommended me for the guitar position in that band. And I had just met Becca, my, my wife, who, who would become my wife. And I got this offer to go out with him, uh, making decent money, touring the world. And I needed someone to help me with Jamie. And Becca said, well, I'll just move in and, and, and take care of her while you're gone. And so she, we lived right down the street from my parents. They'd helped me get into a small house by, at this point. And uh, so I went on the road with fish and next thing you know i'm playing really big gigs all over europe all over south america all over uh the u.s well, radio like city that, music out at, at some point well played. that was yeah that was down through the, the fish gig that was right. down the down the road um that was with uh, porcupine tree okay got it but it was through fish that i met stephen wilson and stephen wilson eventually asked me to become a member of porcupine trees touring band and um i, I toured with them for about eight years and worked with right. stephen on and off for about 10. and at this point jamie's junior high high school yeah and, but you know the interesting thing about it is like i've talked to jamie a lot because she and i've done a lot of work together a lot mm -hmm. of projects together mm -hmm. she's you know grown uh amazing intellectual super capable young woman mm -hmm. and we've had a lot of conversations about her childhood and growing yeah. up and just she and i talking and, and when she talks about you know the the touring and in the in the in your involvement with music mm -hmm. um two things really struck me about that is one is that the first one is that she always is like super proud and smiling when she talks about sure. your relationship to music there's there's no resentment there's no you know she doesn't feel cheated how in the hell did you manage that because you just don't see that right. in the professional music industry yeah. really or any kind of professional you know military like it's very hard mm -hmm. to achieve that kind of um, you know, post journey connection. Sure. What would you attribute that to? When I wasn't out there, I was truly there. Home. Yeah. With, in, her. with her. And truly invested. And not not out of a not out of a, 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 a not out of a way of, oh, I need to do this so or I like don't guilt. lose something. Yeah. Or, no, it was just that's my girl. Right. You know, and we were like that. And so if I was going to miss her birthday, I wouldn't make, you know, I wouldn't like, oh God, I'm going to miss your birthday. It's like, hey, uh, I'm going to be out on this thing. I'm going to miss your birthday. Do something with your mother. When I get back, we'll do this thing. She's like, oh yeah. And so because of the way we always, you know, we didn't put such importance on events that, you know, like there was nothing so important that, that there was a, there was a residual resentment born from it. Right. Um, it, any important event, important event can be moved. Anything can be. It's what you know. my wife Monty and I figured out the same thing yeah. was like with raising three boys in the longest war in history. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you just had to miss those. Oh, yeah. You just, yeah. and we knew that you missed birthdays, you missed Christmas, you missed yeah. Easter. And rather than like, let that take us out. My wife was always just saying, look, we just take advantage of the time we have. Yeah. And, and like you, I always tried to just be home when I was home yeah. and be focused on that. Yeah. And now that my boys are grown and we talk about these things, um, you know, really honestly, they they don't look on that time period as missed time. Yeah. 
what we talk about are the times when we were together. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And um, and she never came out on any of those gigs until she was married years later. It's the first time she ever came out on a gig. Now she's at them all the time. Now she is. Yeah. yeah. She'll fly out and, and see me play. Now, there's one other thing that I'm going to bring up, and it's, sure. and it's not as it's not as easy because I know, Jamie, it's a, it's a point for her, is that she's told me before that she feels like because you had to raise her, that you you did not have the opportunity to go as high as you could have had you just been doing rock and roll. I know she's brought this up to you. Yeah. What do you say to her? What do you say to anybody who kind of feels that way um, looking on a parent's career? What, what did you say? How did you handle that? Um, I've never thought of it that way. And it surprised me when she brought it because I never felt hindered or hampered uh, right. by her, you know. Um, sure, I could have gone to L.A., but uh, what was happening in L.A. wasn't who I wanted to be. So perhaps it wouldn't have worked out for me. So who did you want to be? I, I really loved progressive rock music. I wanted to be the next Pink Floyd. I wanted to be yeah. Alex Lifeson Jr. Yeah. You know, I wanted to, you know, he was my hero. Uh, David Gilmore was my hero. Jeff Beck was my hero. Um, and by doing what I did and, and, and being with her, it led to all of those things. Yeah. And then eventually, you know, I mean, when I was in the porcupine tree, uh, that was the biggest thing I've ever done in my life. And it was one of the most enjoyable times of my life, you know, as a player, as a player. And also Jamie was getting older. And so it was easier, even though it was still difficult, you know, we could talk on the phone. We could, you know, we could always communicate. But like that set, getting to that point, playing with that band and then being able to create the music for myself after the experience of playing with that band and during it um, became a highlight of my life. And yeah. I couldn't have got there had I gone to L.A. and left her with her mother and, you know, made all the easy choices, all the easy choices. Right. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I mean, just I, I just love that. And I think it's it's there's just something in there for for everybody to kind of chew on um, because you didn't compromise. You didn't settle. No, no, never settled. Yeah. No. The, and, and, the, and the thing I didn't ever compromise on, and it was, this also included, you know, I, I, I had a lot of relationships that didn't work out because I was always, you know, uh, I always wanted to find someone that would love her as much as they would pretend to, to care about me. And, you know, and, and that just never happened and it never happened and it never happened. I was uncompromising in that, um, in that, you know, we're a package. <laughs> it's like, yeah, this is who we are. I, there was know? one story <laughs> she told me too, man, that I, I wish you had a picture of it. Yeah. I, I would just kill for it. But it was you playing uh, a gig and her sleeping in your guitar case. Yeah. I wish I had a picture of that too, but I didn't even have a camera back then. You know, there weren't <laughs> camera phones. No, she, you know, there were nights where I couldn't get her to mom and dad in time or, yeah. <clears throat> or they were working, you know, they were working a lot back then. And uh, I had to take her with me. And so you just do it. And she'd get bored and she'd be reading and she then she'd just <laughs> open the case and it was furry on the inside. <laughs> so she'd just have a little jacket and crawl up in the little furry case and put her head on the thing and, and fall asleep. And I'd be like, oh, she's safe. You know? And it was, uh, every time, I mean, there was one point where we were living in a, an apartment and I didn't have a second room for her. So I cleared out the walk-in closet and put toys in it and put glow stars up. And for a year she lived in a walk-in closet, you know? And but she, you guys were a package. But we were a package. And that's the way it was, you know. And then when Becca came along, um, she recognized. I mean, Becca was only 23 when we met. Yeah. And um, she recognized 
the package. And then also she recognized the value in that. Right. Right. And instantly she jumped in and, um, helped. Yeah. And know? how did Becca coming in, you know, you've been on your own all these years. Mm-hmm. Uh, eventually you and Becca get married. How did that, how did that change your life? Um, structure, you know, we started incorporating some structure cause I, I was truly a bachelor. And I mean, when Becca tells a story, when she, when she came in, you know, there was some leftover Taco Bell, maybe a Chinese, a bottle of really bad white wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that was it in the fridge. And she was like, yeah, I either can't stay here or I'm going to have to do something about this. Yeah. And then she did. And she incorporated. And she still does. She still does. Because <laughs> I would still buy really bad wine. But, um, you know, and she created structure at a time when Jamie really needed it. Yeah. And she was a role model, even though Jamie didn't recognize it and really pushed back against it at the time. Yeah, she did sure. not like it. Sure. Uh, we didn't learn until recently that she had a nickname because I introduced Jamie to this young girl that was working in a bar that eventually came to live with us. And her nickname inside her head was Barbecca. Why is Barbecca in my house? Wow. You know? <laughs> but you, but you pushed through it because that's what through. needed to happen. Yeah. Um, that's what needed to happen. Yeah. So, so now you're, you're playing, you're, you're playing at a super high level yes. Yes. touring with like really amazing bands. Yeah. Um, how does that start to change? You know, the next inflection point in your life. I mean, for one thing, yeah, um, you get a you get a nice little surprise at age. Oh yeah. Well, it, near the end of the porcupine tree run, Becca and I had never had a child. Becca had never had a child of her own, and had never really wanted one. And Jamie had gone off to college, and we were empty nesters, and we had our motorcycles, and we're riding around the country and every now and again we'd ride with Neil Peart, you know, and life was good. And if I was playing in Europe and I had a couple of days, you know, off somewhere in between a festival, she could meet me in Paris or someplace like that. And life was good. Life good. It's empty nester it's good. Empty nester good. I know what that is. Yes. Man. You know, you're experiencing Living it, right it now. now. Yeah. And I was having the time of my life. Yeah. And uh, she said one day, you know, I think, if I don't have a baby, I'm going to jump off a bridge. Oh, God. <laughs> and you see this coming at all? No. Wow. Oh, no. And I kind of okay. lost it, you know, <laughs> a little bit, you know. I tried to stay in Israel. And uh, at this point, I am 48 years old. Okay. That's you special. I had been through some stuff. Right. You know. And you're an empty nester. I'm an empty nester. And yeah. We got motorcycles, honey. <laughs> and we ride them. We got Ducatis. What are you talking you're about? You're talking about, you know, and... Uh, and uh, I play in rock bands, and you fly to see me. Yeah. And um, she, she wanted to have a baby, and I, I had to make a decision, either stay or go. And um, I went crazy for a while, and uh, I stayed, you know? Yeah. And then two yes. years later, we had little Jay. Little Jay, mm-hmm. who's now how old? He's 10 years old. 10 years old. And, yeah. um, but how, because you're, you're coming up on kind of this this next major inflection point in rock and roll in your life. Yeah. You know, Jay, now you've got a little one. How does all of this start to converge and change for you? Well, I had to, I had to figure it out again. How am I going to have a, a child, a small child? Right. Becca wasn't really working that much at the time. How am I going to make a living? You know? So again, I started doing a lot of gigs around here really heavily. And I, start, I put the word out. Now, can I also point out that yeah. Jamie and Becca are pregnant at the same time? They are pregnant at the same time. And there was almost a reality show. There was almost a reality show. They approached us. 
Thought You're welcome, fun. folks. Yeah. You're welcome. No charge for that. Yeah, it's a reality fun. show. And they were like, okay, so, but we need some conflict. And Jamie's like, yeah, I mean, before we were pregnant, we used to like hang out together and right. drink when dad was away. So <laughs> right. why would we, yeah. there's no happening. conflict. We're actually really close. Right. <laughs> so we didn't do it. Yeah. Um, Could have used the money. But anyway, that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, so I was really fortunate and, you know, I got uh, this gig making elevator music, acoustic elevator music for a label in LA that really helped me out. Um, and then, you know, I'd get gigs, uh, with different people. A guy named Dave Kirzner helped me get a gig with, uh, Simon Collins. Uh, Dave's a good friend and, and he's turned me on to a couple other things. And, uh, so just, you know, as things would kind of roll through that time period, there was enough, uh, through that, through meeting Simon Collins, I met the, the current label that I'm on. Um, and I released a solo album. I got to do some touring on the back of that. And, uh, I met a good friend of mine, um, who, who, who um, was, was, you know, let's say comfortable in his life. He was able to help finance some of that because um, there was a big hefty lift in a, in a touring album mode and help get some of that off the ground. And, and, and it just propelled us and kept us going and kept us going. And uh, so at no point did I ever go, I'm done, you know. And I was in my 50s, which is kind of crazy if you think about it. And then uh, right around 2016, I released my second record uh, solo. Well, my second solo record on that label. Best record I've ever made. Sold the best. Went out with Marillion, supporting them. Not teching, just supporting them all over the world. Came home after a bunch of money. Uh, I'm sorry, after a bunch, uh, a bunch of money spent. Uh, a bunch of gigs, wonderful gigs. And it was 2016, and it had stopped. And, and it being... The money, because yeah. Spotify had come in, and there was no real way to, to. I was signing CDs, and people would come up and sign my program for me because you know I already have your CD, and I'm like, oh, you have it? You ordered it? No, no, no. I, I listen on Spotify. It's wonderful, and I'm like, could you buy it? Yeah. <laughs> and that was over, and and I was just getting a big taste of that. Yeah. So the income thing had had ended. What did that feel like? I mean, to be like kind of at that pinnacle point. Yeah. You worked so decades, decades, decades yeah. to get there, yeah. and all of the sacrifice, raising a, a, a young lady single-handedly, another little one at home. Yeah. I'm like, what? What did that? What is that like? It was crushing. And, and Becca was like, "Look, you know, to be fair, you've given it a good run. You're God, not 2016. I was 54 years old. Um, you need to get a job. And I had yeah. met you. That's right. In Enter summer. Enter." Mr. Man, <laughs> the previous summer, he needed to record somewhere. We did the recording and we started a podcast and I was his host for the first 15 yeah. episodes, co-host. Yeah. And, uh, and then it, they just, the rest is history. The rest is history. But, you know, I, I remember you talking about the, how the industry had changed. At mm -hmm. that, and I didn't really understand it until I've spent years with you since yeah. talking about this and, and really getting an appreciation for you know just how stark and and mm -hmm. and and jarring that must have mm -hmm. been um but you know i want to point out that like you didn't you didn't like hang your head no um you literally just made another pivot i did yeah you know and and we started doing our work yeah. together mm -hmm. uh with rooftop leadership yeah. and 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 all of the things and and there's you know i just want to point out to to you guys watching and i and i don't think i've ever said this publicly 
But I feel pretty safe saying this, that I don't think anything that I do with rooftop leadership would have been possible without Wes. Uh, I certainly don't think the play uh, would have last out that is, that is getting ready to tour with the Gary Sinise Foundation. I don't think it would have ever seen the light of day without Wes. Um, in fact, most of the things that I was just getting into at that time, you know, I was coming out of kind of a similar place that you had been from that contracting world and was really wanting to get into the public space. I felt like I had something to say. I felt like there was so much going on with the churn in this country. Yeah, and yeah. and I, I knew I could play a role in that by taking the lessons I'd learned as a Green Beret around interpersonal connection and storytelling. And But I didn't know, I just, I, one, I didn't know how to do it. And two, I didn't have, I didn't really have the confidence to do it. I didn't feel like I really had, you know, anybody would, would listen to what I had to say. And, you know, you came along at that point and you had put yourself out there so many times, yeah. right? That you, you know, you said to me, like, you, you got to do this. Yeah, you have to. Yeah. Um, I mean, nothing I had ever done had ever gone cataclysmic, but it had all amounted to something creative happening a really good time and enough of an income to put a wife and a daughter through college. Yeah, and I think also just the level of impact that you had had in your family's life, your yeah. daughter's life, your yeah. community's like you're a you're a pillar in this community, man. Like I mean, I look at how you you in the hurricane went went like sprinting to the aid of a buddy who like just lost everything and 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 how Every time somebody's hit with a, an illness or cancer, like you're the first person they reach out to or you're the first person to go to them. And, you know, I think those levels of impact, I mean, to me, are what rooftop leadership's about. It's about, it's about making that impact at a local level yeah. um, and, and being okay with that. Yeah. You know, yet, yes, you had the labels. Yes, you had the big venues. But at the end of the day, when I look about like what you, it was a cumulative journey of impact. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, and, and, a level of artistry and creative work that you didn't compromise on. No, I never did. And even when Becca said, you've got to get a job, I always knew that oh, I would be doing something. And six days later, yeah. I decided yeah. to, to go forward. Yeah. And I always knew I wouldn't stop playing. And I'm still not. Yeah. You know, I'm still writing a record right now and, and I'm playing with Vertical Horizon. And, yeah. You know, no, for sure. And I, and I want to hit that, actually, because like... Um, you, you're, you're a real patriot, you know, like you've, you've always been a patriotic guy and, you know, you and I've talked a lot about this. You've yeah. played a big role in the stuff that we do for veterans, but you had a particular, um, you know, brush with loss in the, in the war on terror. You know, Jamie's very dear friend and a friend of yeah, your Mark. family. Mm -hmm. uh, Mark was, um, fell in Iraq on yeah. uh, Thanksgiving day. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, how you coped and how you used your own um, art to, to heal around that. Interesting. Yeah. I'd forgotten about that. Uh, yeah, I was, I was on a, I was on a tour. I was in Germany and, uh, you know, I had a cell phone Blackberry at the time and on Thanksgiving, uh, in Germany, probably about three in the morning, I get this phone call and it's from Jamie and she's just crying and, you know, out of, out of control. Mark's gone, Mark's gone, Mark's gone. And, uh, Mark had been killed uh, in, in Baghdad that morning, and they had showed up Thanksgiving morning to his mother's house, which was next door to my sister's house, and uh, informed his mother that he was gone, and he wouldn't... Actually, it was the next morning, because he was killed on Thanksgiving yeah. Day, and she didn't get the call. You know, normally you get the Thanksgiving call. She didn't get the call. 
And uh, so the next morning after Thanksgiving, five o'clock in the morning, the car pulls up in the driveway. And uh, I think we all know this, how that goes after that. And uh, it, it wrecked all of us, you know. And I mean, she grew up with him, you know. And um, so a, a song called Thanksgiving Day was born out of that, you know. And it was based in, you know, that, that, that walk up to the front door and that empty chair at Thanksgiving. Day. Yeah. It's, it's just so powerful. Um, and hard song to listen to. Yeah. Where, where can people find that? Oh, uh, you can just Google John Wesley Thanksgiving day. And it'll, there's a, <laughs> it's a really low budget video of it out there. Well, it's powerful stuff, but man. It's, uh, yeah. yeah it, but you can hear it, the song. It hits you hard. Yeah. Uh, but it's yeah. necessary. I mean, that yeah. kind of storytelling, the yeah. same way as Last Out. And, yes. Absolutely. You know, doing that kind of work. You did a remake of Ballad of the Green Beret. What was yeah. that like doing that for the play? And what was that like to take that iconic classic of Barry Sadler's and, and, and put the kind of, because you really put your spin on yeah. it. You really put your vibe into it. What was that like? Well, when we were working on things for for last out and we were doing the different versions of the Ballad of the Green Beret and I'd heard it so many times you know there's the chest thumping element of the Ballad of the Green Beret but there was this last verse that was that took it to the wife yes. and it took it to like whoa 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 wait to a minute son. to the son yeah. and then it was like there is real sacrifice here that yeah. I don't think is was as portrayed as much in the early parts of the song right so I wanted to, I took the first verse and then that last verse and connected those two and in, in, a, in a more of a moody way. And I invited one of my dear, very talented friends, Jerry X, to, to sing with me. And she delivered a performance that is just, you know. It's insane. And so, uh, I don't know if I'm, give, if I'm giving too much away, but it's in the play live. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and it's what was that like to see it in the live version of the play? It it choked me up, you know, yeah. because the you know the the play finishes, boom. There's the I won't give it yeah. away, but there's the moment, and then that's all. Wow. And Jay's voice is on. Jay's voice, yeah. <laughs> Think, so Jay starts off the song. Yeah. Little Jay, how old was he when he recorded that? Uh, about six. Yeah. And yeah, so seven. the little child's voice, and then it cuts right into the remake. And then into the remake, and yeah. it's just him solo. Yeah, with no no acoustic or anything. Yeah, just just him, his voice. Acapella. Yeah, and that's haunting. It is. Know? It is because it really drives home what you're talking about. In yeah. fact, the play follows the ballad of the Green Beret in the arc of yeah, the story. In the arc of the story, exactly. Absolutely. Um, so, once you came off the road, you started working at Rooftop. You and I partnering, collaborating on all kinds of crazy projects. So much has happened in your life. And, yeah. You know, I, I I talk about how like it was as if you were. You had a million different things thrown at you, mm -hmm. you know, and I really believe that like your, your post-traumatic growth in all the stuff that you went through on the road in, you know, challenges with your, with your first marriage and all those things like paled in comparison to some of the things that were thrown at you, <laughs> you know, after you, yeah. you, you quote unquote came off the road. Um, I'll let you choose what you talk about there, but but like, can, can give us a sense of that because it's like you you, you came off the road, you, you dove into this new career yeah. with me at Rooftop, but yeah. yet the hits just keep coming. The hits keep coming. Yeah, um, you know, obviously, uh, <laughs> how do you even get to that? Uh, you know, there were some 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 things that happened. You know, you, you know, 
genetic testing is a bitch. That's all I'm going to say. Just <laughs> I was going to let you go there. Just you know, I'll let you segue. I didn't even know uh, how to segue. I mean, usually I can segue like a fiend. Yes. But yeah, that's a good one. Genetic testing is a bitch. bitch. Just okay. you know, if you that haven't be the done name it, of the podcast. <laughs> yes, genetic testing is a of bitch. this episode. So yeah, I mean, and and, and we can go there. Um, I was adopted, and uh, my wife wanted to uh, wanted to know my genetic history, so we found it. And, um, you know, I, I, I hit the lottery with my adopted parents, you know, uh, and, but, uh, through some genetic testing, we found out some things and, um, you know, we found out that, that, uh, Jamie and I didn't have the, the, uh, the blood relation, the genetic relationship that we thought we had. And, uh, it was very difficult at first, but I realized that I was adopted and, and in a way, you know, now she was adopted. So, so, but I just want to like, you guys are a package. Yes. You're so yeah. close. Yeah. You've been through all this shit together. Yes. And all of a sudden you find this out. She finds this out. Yeah. How did it affect her? How did it affect you? Well, instantly brought us closer because we were both like, well, I'm not losing you. She's I'm not losing you, you know, because there's that thing of all of a sudden there's this, oh my God, you're, you're not father, daughter. And it's like, you know, so that fear comes in, you know, so I'm, I will not give up. And, right. but she even more so, you know, right. And so instantly we were brought together and we had to have hours and hours and hours of talks, you know, to work through it because there's a level of betrayal that we both experienced, you know, however all that, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't even matter anymore. But uh, you you find yourself. That's when you know that that uh, God. I don't know how to say it. They're, they're, that it's black and white, man. This is serious. Like all that other shit you've done in your life. All so this is this is you and her, and you guys have to make the call, and you have to make it right now. Are you still in? Is everything that you've been in your whole life real? And yes, and it became even more real. And I just that to me, dude. Like I just have to tell you. Like I've seen a lot of different challenges that people go through. I've been through my own. Yeah. But but what you guys went through in that situation and how you navigated that situation and and it and, and, and how you went back to the most simple choices that you made in that moment of your career. Yeah. That we're a package. Yeah. That you don't get one without the other. Yeah. Yeah. And everything else can just wait. Yeah. I personally believe that that's what came through for you. In that moment, in that when moment. you found that, out. yeah, do you agree yeah. with that or not? I, I do, absolutely. And it wasn't something, you know, like I said, it, those were just decisions that you made back then. And it was like, no, this is the way it is. There isn't, there's no other possibility. Yeah. You know, you, I'm not going to LA for any gig to live and not have my daughter. You know, it's like, right. I can't. Once, you know, her mother had some issues and and wasn't able to care for her and couldn't really realistically ever go back there right and so at that point well how's she gonna go she's she's mine she's with me this is the way it's gonna be but the way that you made that decision and that she made that decision on the other mm -hmm. side of it was just as adamant oh it was. was just as like there's no other choice yeah. Yeah. And, and that to me is one of the things that i think is so important in our yeah. in our life in the rooftop arena is that we have the agency to choose yeah absolutely. right even you know if you look at what happened with pineapple yeah dunkirk yeah moral compass like that you was a see choice. these veterans that had a choice mm -hmm. and they could say nobody's coming 
no, I do not choose to accept that. I choose to do this. Yeah. And it may not be enough, but yeah. it's what I'm going to do. Yeah. You know, and, and if you look at people in volunteer 501c3s who most of what they're doing is choice yeah. because they see something that's wrong yeah. and they say adamantly, no, I'm not accepting that. I'm going to take action here. Yeah. And that's what you guys did in that moment. We did. Absolutely. And, and it led to her being even closer with Becca. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we did this weird little foul adoption ceremony, you know, like adult adoption. <laughs> Becca Googled it and printed some papers out and we had a little, you know. But I don't think that's silly at all, dude. I don't, and I don't think that's false at all. Yeah. You know, and I, yeah. I think that honestly, it, it's, it's, it's one of the coolest things I've ever heard is that you guys did that, yeah. you know, because it solidified your agency of choice. Yes. Right. It solidified the agency that you had exercised yeah. throughout. And then when it, came down to it at the time of betrayal. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're not going to, we're no, not doing that. We're not doing this. This is, we're not going that way. So we're going to have a ceremony Yeah. and I'm going to. Yeah. And, and Becca, and, and this wasn't me, this was Becca was going to adopt her. Wow. So it was like, this was Becca's way of. I just, I just did. I'm just speechless. You know, I was like, no, I didn't even know that. you're mine. No, this, yeah, was, yeah it wasn't for me yeah. because okay, we were wow. like, Jamie was that's like, already no, done. That's already done. Yeah. I got and you. Becca's like, wow, no, that's even cooler. This is me. Now I'm going to adopt her. Now I'm going to be. Yeah. Your adopted and that's mother. just agency, man. Yeah. That's just mm -hmm. agency yeah. on display mm -hmm. in a shitty situation. Mm -hmm. Um, and it is tough and you know, and, and, and luckily for Jamie, she's, she's made peace with her mother. Mm -hmm. And that's great, you know, and, yeah. and they're getting along and they're fine. And for me, you know, I mean, like, just like I said to Jamie, I, you know, it was a weird time. It was the eighties. I don't know what happened, you know, and, right. uh, and it doesn't matter now because yeah. we've got 30 at the time she was 31, 32 years old. So we've got all that, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter what happened then. It's what's happening now, yeah. and this is where we are now, yeah. so what do we do now? It, it's like Nizam said, you know, yeah. we, we have the agency to actually build a family. Yeah. yeah. The families that we're born with, but there's also the families that we build. That we build, yeah. You know, and uh, yeah. I just think that that's awesome, man. Uh, anything else from that, I mean, look, look, I'll bring this, I'll segue into this yeah. one. You know, um, you get an offer to go back on the road and play with an amazing band. Yep. Vertical Horizon. Yep. Um, you know, an award-winning band. Yep. Uh, top 40 hits. I think even number, number one. one. Mm -hmm. um, so you get the opportunity to go back on the road with them. Mm -hmm. And uh, at a point in your life where most people would be like, no way, man, I'm not doing that. So yeah. you start training for it physically, <laughs> mentally, yeah. obviously with your guitar craft yep. and your vocals. Yeah. Um, and you do it. You go on the road with them, and then yeah. you get you get smacked with the c word. <laughs> Man, smacked hard. It was funny because uh, it, there was a series, a two week period. There was a band, you know, that I toured with for many years called the Porcupine Tree, and um, I had been talking with a singer for the two three year prior period about a, a reunion. He said, "Look, it's, keep it under your hat. It's a possible thing." So I was gearing up for that. Yeah. And um, which is huge. Which is huge. And then at, at the beginning of that year, we had discussed doing it. And then it all went dark, and for whatever reason, uh, I didn't hear from them. And then um, Matt from Vertical Horizon calls and says, look, I'm in a jam. Can you help me out? Can you pick up this tour starting in two weeks? I'm like, yes, I will learn the material. I would do it. But when Porcupine Tree calls in six months or so, I'm going to 
have to, you know, and he's like, cool, just get me through this. I said, okay. So uh, Porcupine Tree called uh, that week and uh, said, uh, we're not going to do this. Um, we're going to go another direction. You know, it's the same old thing, man. They, two guys in the band were, you know, late 50s, and they replaced them with two guys in their early 30s. What can I say? New, a new, they, they wanted to present a new live show, so they did. But for me, it was, it was crushing. And then a couple of days later, I find out that I probably have cancer. So the vertical thing came right before those two bad things. And the vertical thing we'd gotten through, Matt and I had met through Neil Peart, our mutual friend, the drummer from Rush, who'd passed away recently before that from cancer. And he was a dear friend to both of us. And it was that connection that brought us together doing this. And so... In, I, two weeks later, I'm, you know, I've got cancer going through my mind. I've, I'm wrecked. I just lost the gig with Porcupine Tree. It was devastating. And yet here I am with this group of happy people. <laughs> like, whoa, right. this is kind of cool. Boy, they're really good, too. These guys can play. And Songcraft, I mean, the Songcraft is just outstanding. I mean, Right. <laughs> uh, okay. And then, you know, they rode the cancer journey with me. Yeah. You know? And, and, and it wasn't ever like, oh, dude, you got the big seat. Yeah, we got you covered, man. We got another guy coming in. Uh, it was like, okay, well, just let us know if you need anything covered. And they, I went on the day I had to go for my surgery, we had a gig a month later in Dallas. And I told him, I said, I, I told the doctor, I said, I want to make that gig. And he's like, well, you'll be altered. <laughs> <laughs> but you could probably still play guitar. And I told that to Matt. I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bust my ass. I'm going to recover. I'm going to work really hard, do everything they tell me. I'm going to be on that stage in Dallas. And you did. I, I'm just astounded that you went through that kind of surgery for your cancer mm -hmm. and then was you were back in the gig in a month. What do you attribute that to? Uh, my wife. Okay. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you set your sight on something. And I needed something to get through that. Yeah. You know, because it was a, you know, cancer surgery is not restorative in any way. Right. So, you know, you, you got some coming back to do. And uh, she carried my gear for me so I didn't have to lift anything heavy. And, uh, and they, you know, they made concessions uh, for me. And, uh, and the gig went off like nothing had happened. It's just astounding. And now you're touring with them? Yeah, full time. Yeah. Full time. And, yeah. and uh, back in the green? Yeah. Just like every? Yeah. yeah. Oh, in every way. Yeah. Cancer's clear. Um, and that was part of it. The doctor said, look, you know, it, he called me on New Year's Eve day and said, look, you got to go now. Uh, and if you go now, I'm sure I can get this. But if you wait three months, I can't promise that you got three years after that. You know, he goes, it's moving fast and we don't know why it's not wasn't what we thought it was. But it's changed. You know, this is something we got have to address. Kind of like that preacher saying, yeah, or the priest saying, I need you to play guitar. Yeah. Yeah. But I don't want to. I don't well, want to figure it out. And he said, "What are you doing next Tuesday?" <laughs> and I was like, "Guess I'm going to lose a few pounds next Tuesday." So, you know, we did, and it was successful. And he came out of there going, "When is that performance, Rebecca?" <laughs> and she's like, "A month." And he just shook his head and said, "I think he'll make it." Uh. And then, uh, and then I've been. My tests have come back uh, clear ever since. Yeah, it's so just God bless him. You know. So through all of this, man, I mean, and, and, you know, one thing I would just point out is the power of purpose and meaning. Yeah. When we put that in front of ourselves, you know, my dad, when he had his stroke, was supposed to go give a talk to the Eastern Band of the Cherokee Indians about a chestnut orchard. Yeah. 
that he yeah. is, you know, he's restoring this tree. And he was just about to give that talk to the tribal council when um, he was struck down with a stroke. And he was laying in his hospital bed or his recovery bed in Asheville, North Carolina. And my brother and I built a vision board. Yeah. And that vision board simply contained pictures of the American chestnut, of the tribal council, the Eastern band seal, and all the things that represented what he had worked so hard yeah. for decades to get to. And he stared at that thing every day. He couldn't, he couldn't move, couldn't get out of the bed, so he yeah. had to stare at it. Uh, and I will tell you, about within about two months, he was presenting to that council yeah. again, and he was paralyzed. Yeah. He couldn't walk. Yeah. Taught himself how to walk again. And I just, the, the, we are meaning-seeking creatures. Yeah, absolutely. We're meaning-assigning creatures. And to have that purpose in front of us when we're going through rough times yeah. is, is everything. It is. So what would you say as we wrap this thing up, man, through all of the things like, you know, we didn't even get into the competition shooting that you do, the mm. sound design, yeah. the masterful sound studio, and uh, all of the various things of your body of work, but certainly music and, mm. and, and writing songs and singing songs and performing songs around the world. And what would you say when, when you look back on your life, first of all, I'm going to ask you to like, can you just speak to regimen? Yeah. And this adherence to to temperance, to self-control, to discipline when nobody's looking and the world's raging around you. How, what have you learned about regimen in relation to your own journey that you think would be worthy of sharing here in this forum? Hills and valleys. Um, you know, you hear these stories of these people that are just so incredibly disciplined and every single day and their 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 day is counted out to the 15 minute increments. And there are times when, when you get to that point, but there are times when you can't even pick up a guitar, you can't take a walk, you can't do a weight routine, you can't do anything. And so it's hills and valleys. And there are times when you really have to step up and step up hard. And I've always been at least able to push myself to step up then. And then as I grow older, I'm constantly seeking constantly seeking ways to fit in more skill acquisition in between the day. I mean, obviously we, we, we have a, a company that we run and, and we, there's work to be done, but I, I have times that I know that, you know, if I can't do it on this day, I know I'll get it on this day. And if I can't get it in this morning, Becca will come home. Maybe she'll do it with me at night. Right. And, you know, and I have guitars around the house to where if I, Jay's watching TV, Becca's cooking. I got 15 minutes to run in the corner and someone's going to leave me alone. And I know if I hammer this part for 15 minutes solid, I'm going to nail it. And, and, and that's, that's what it's become, you know? Yeah. It's, you've really, you've really created an environment, uh, as, as James Cleary talks about in Atomic Habits mm -hmm. of where you can get into flow Yes. Easier. Easier. Anywhere. Uh, yeah. yeah. And, and I've noticed that about you. I can't tell you guys how many times on Zoom calls where we're talking about the play or pineapple or something and Wes is on his guitar mm -hmm. playing while we're talking, mm -hmm. you know, um, but, but you really do have a relationship to practice. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it's taken years to develop and I'm still developing. I just downloaded an ebook two days ago from some Cirque du Soleil guy about practice. I yeah. want to know his secrets, you know, but you have an insatiable appetite. For oh it. yeah. And it's worse now. It's worse than it was when I was a kid. Yeah, it's worse here. when I was on the road in, in a band, you know, same living here. in hotel rooms. Yeah, it's, it's, or better, depending on how you Yeah, think. exactly. It's more driven now. Like people say, did you see that series on, on Netflix? And I was like, I, no, no, I didn't see it. No, I was practicing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so what would you say to a young person 
or someone who aspires to chase the kind of audacious dream that you had right? and is balancing all of these tough things from not having any money in their pocket, no place to lay their head at night. Maybe they're trying to raise a family. What would you say to them? Well, it isn't, it isn't, is it, it isn't the old thing of don't give up it, or, you know, it's, it's just be true to yourself, be true to your vision, but don't, don't crash your life and the lives of, of the people around you. Like when I was chasing this dream, there were long periods of time when all I did was gig and work uh, locally uh, just so I could pay the rent. And sometimes you just got to pay the rent. And then there are those other times when you can be creative and you can chase that thing. And especially now, because even if you get a record deal and, and you get that thing and you're starting to do something, it doesn't change your financial picture like it used to. I mean, it used to be you were granted a shit ton of money and your life changed and you were, man, you were okay. You don't have right. to worry anymore. It's not like that anymore. So I would say to a young person, the avenues to artistic quote, success, whereas people are listening to your music or people are seeing your movie are more infinite than we had. But the lifestyle that goes with it has to be more balanced. Yeah. You know, and it, it's good. just, you know, you're not going to get it by the time you're 23 or if you do, you're lucky, but you can just keep doing it. Just have a way to make money, have a way to have a place to live. If you meet someone that you care about and you love and you want to be with, don't toss that away to chase some dream incorporated into your life. That's really great, man. And I think it really speaks to the fact that like, as I look at you now, you know, you just did this big gig on an aircraft carrier yes. performing for sailors, Yeah, you know, Amazing. traveled all the way to Japan to do that. Like, you know, I think when you walk the path the way you've walked it, you know, there's a path you can walk to, to be like the best at something and, yeah. and you know, and that's great. Yeah. There's also a path you can walk to be the most relevant. Mm you know, to where what you do actually serves something bigger than yourself. And it seems to me that that's kind of the path that you've evolved to. Is that accurate? And if so, can you speak a little bit more about it? I hadn't, you know, it, it's something you, you don't really think about. It's, it's something that you don't aim at. It's just that, you know, you have principles. And my father was a very principled man. He's a very, he was a very, uh, very simple and straightforward man. He was a machinist. That's what he did. He had his wife, he had his kids, he had his family and he played golf and that was it, man. Yeah. And, you know, being the recipient of that kind of focus, I wanted to make sure that, that as I go through my life, that the people that I love and care about, that I hope that I will give them that focus and that love. And then they'll give it to their children and they'll give it to their you know, that's what I want to pass on. It's just so cool to see you playing at this like rock and roll level though. When I see you perform, I've seen you perform sure. several yeah. times with uh, Vertical Horizon and here you are up there with that amazing band, but yet what really drives you and what really um, motivates you are the local impacts yeah. that you make. Yeah. And I just, there's, there's some real lessons in there, man. Well, is there anything, Wes, that we didn't cover uh, in this episode? Um, of rooftop regimen and rock and roll that we need to cover or that you'd like to hit on? No, no, no. Just be true to yourself. Be true to the people that you love and, uh, you know, care about your friends, care about your family. And, and I, again, I don't want to say don't give up. I, I would just say don't wreck your life and the lives of others chasing some silly dream. Yeah. Yeah. 
Right on. Okay. Well, there it is, folks. Uh, an amazing conversation. I, I've been. It's a conversation that Wes and I have had in bits and pieces. We'll, we'll obviously have you back on because we got to hear some Leonard Skinner stories and you know <laughs> yeah. some of the other uh, bands oh, that you were, you were around. Yeah, yeah, there's some we'll, stories. We may have to put a rating. Yeah, we have to have to rate some things. There's a few um, that need ratings. But uh, thanks to everybody for for dialing in and uh, for being part of this conversation. These are the kinds of conversations that I, I want to continue to have and go deeper on because really what we're building at Rooftop is a community of leaders who value relevance over everything else, being relevant to the people that we lead, relevant to the people in our community, and who are willing to step into the arena when nobody else is coming and lead and build movements that mobilize people to take action they otherwise wouldn't take. That's the last best chance this country has. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's gonna come from people like you who dial into this, and uh, I'll continue to bring you amazing leaders like Wes who tell you how they did it, because uh, there's nothing new under the sun, and the miles that this guy has run is something that we can all learn from, and I know I do every day. So thanks for what you do, and we'll see you on the rooftop. <laughs>